Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host tonight, Shante Charles, and tonight is Monday Motivation. We're going to be reading from two books on tonight. The first book we're reading from is I Never Had It Made by Jackie Robinson, which is an autobiography. And then the next book that we'll be reading from is a subject that we started on, which has become super important right now, and that is by Stacey Abrams. And the title of the book is Our Time Is Now. So I want to welcome those of you who will come in live and also want to welcome those of you who are catching this by replay. We're going to hop right into our motivation, our biography Monday Reads, starting with Jackie Robinson. We are in to chapter one and chapter one is entitled A Dream Deferred. A dream deferred. We started learning about um, Jackie Robinson and those who had influenced him in his early years. And we're going to continue reading about those who had been influencers of Jackie Robinson in his early years. One man by the name of Carl Downs. And it reads, inspired by Carl's dedication, I volunteered to become a Sunday school teacher. At that time, I had a heavy athletic schedule at UCLA. On Sunday mornings, when I woke up sore and aching because of a football game the day before, I yearned to just stay in bed. But no matter how terrible I felt, I had to get up. It was impossible to shirk duty when Carl Downs was involved. My friendship with Carl continued for more than 10 years. There was a healthy sense of competition in our relationship. Carl was both stubborn and good-natured about wanting to beat me at sports. Jack, he would say, as if he were about to play golf, you know I'm a minister, so I can't bet you, but I've got to bond you 10 cents. Even though Carl was a great friend, he never forgot he was a minister. Often he would find a way of applying a story in the Bible to something that happened in real life. He didn't preach and he didn't talk down like so many adults or view you from some holy distance. He was in there with you, Jackie said. Sports had been a big thing with me ever since I was a little boy. In grammar school, some of my classmates would share their lunches with me if I played on their team. When I went to John Murr Technical High, I earned letters in football, basketball, baseball, and track. I enjoy competition and I was aggressive in my determination to win. Often I found myself being singled out by the other players. They decided that I was the best man to beat. I enjoyed having that kind of reputation, but I was also very much aware of the importance of being a team man, not jeopardizing my team's chances simply to get the spotlight. In my junior high school days and later at Pasadena Junior College, my brother Frank was my greatest fan. He constantly encouraged me and advised me. I wanted to win, not only for myself, but also because I didn't want to see Frank disappointed. At Pasadena, my football career was interrupted by a broken ankle acquired during a practice session. It took weeks to heal, but I made up for lost time when I got back into action playing first string quarterback. After my return, we won the remaining five games and the following year, Pasadena won all 11 games. While at Pasadena Junior College, I had beaten the record of my older brother, Mac, in broad jumping. 
I had the greatest respect for Mac because of his achievements in track. Even though doctors warned him that his participation in sports could be fatal because he had a heart ailment, he wouldn't give up. He earned a big name on the West Coast as a sprinter, and in 1936, he thrilled our family and neighborhood by finishing second to Jesse Owens in the Berlin Olympics. The heart condition never defeated Mac Robinson, also a descendant of mine. Frank, whose support was unceasing, was particularly proud in 1938 when I made local history in two different events in different cities on the same day. In the morning in Pomona, I set a new running broad jump record of 25 feet, six and a half inches. In the afternoon in Glendale, I played shortstop with the Pasadena team and we won the championship. My athletic career had received a great deal of publicity and there were a number of colleges putting out feelers offering athletic scholarships. The college that offered me the most attractive scholarship was very far away from Pasadena, but I wanted to stay close to home. One of my major reasons was to be able to continue to benefit from Frank's encouragement. As a result, I agreed to go to UCLA. Very shortly afterward, Frank was killed in a motorcycle accident. I was very shaken up by his death. It was hard to believe he was gone, hard to believe I would no longer have his support. At UCLA, I became the university's first four-letter man. I participated in basketball, baseball, football, and track and received honorable mention in football and basketball. I didn't think anything could come into my life that would be more vital to me than my sports career. I believe that until Ray Bartlett, my best friend at UCLA, introduced me to Rachel Isom. Ray brought her into the student lounge where I was working part-time. I was immediately attracted to Rachel's looks and charm, but as in many love stories, I didn't have the slightest idea I was meeting a young lady who would become the most important person in my life. When she left, I walked into the parking lot with her. She made me feel at ease and I thoroughly enjoyed talking with her. Later, to my dismay, I learned that when Rachel had seen me play ball at Pasadena Junior College, she felt that I was cocky, conceited, and self-centered. Part of this was because I was considered one of the most important athletes on campus, and she assumed it had gone to my head. Additionally, Pasadena Junior College in Los Angeles, where Rachel lived, were serious rivals. Rachel admits she had an unshakable adolescent belief in her team. When we met, she was a freshman and I was a senior. She was shy and wary of the campus hero. Ray told me later, after we knew each other well, that at football games, she had watched the way I had stood in the backfield with my hands on my hips, and this stance reinforced her impression that I was stuck on myself. Rachel quickly overcame her Jackie Robinson prejudices. There were few, are few people it is easy for me to confide in, but when I was with Ray, I was delighted to find that I could tell her anything. She was always understanding and beyond that, very direct and honest with me. I respected the fact that she never hesitated to disagree with my point of view. From the beginning, I realized there was something special about Ray, but it wasn't until her father died in 1940 that I realized I was deeply in love with her. Ray's deep grief had a profound effect on me. In this time of sorrow, we found each other, and I knew then that our relationship was to be one of the most important things in my life, no matter what happened to me. Rachel's mother, Zelie Isom, who was warm and kind to me from the beginning, approved. 
After two years at UCLA, I decided to leave. I was convinced that no amount of education would help a black man get a job. I felt I was living in an academic and athletic dream world. It seemed very necessary for me to relieve some of my mother's financial burdens, even though I knew it had always been her dream to have me finish college. I had used up my athletic eligibility in the major sports at UCLA, but the university begged me to stay on and graduate. They even offered me extra financial support. Rachel, too, felt strongly about the importance of a degree. Despite all this, I could see no future in staying at college, no real future in athletics, and I wanted to do the next best thing, become an athletic director. The thought of working with youngsters in the field of sports excited me. To my surprise, Ray reluctantly accepted my decision. She felt that if this was what I really wanted, then I should look for a job. Through Pat Ahern, Athletic Director for National Youth Administration, I was offered a job as Assistant Athletic Director at their camp at Atascadero, California. It meant a great deal to me, and it was rewarding to be involved with the youngsters, most of whom who had come from poor or broken homes. However, it was a short-lived experience because World War II broke out in Europe within a few months and the government closed down all of the NYA projects, even though America at the time wasn't involved in the war. In those days, no major football or basketball clubs hired black players. The only job offered me was with the Honolulu Bears. And when I reported there, I got a job with a construction company headquartered near Pearl Harbor. I worked for them during the week and played football on Sundays with my first pro team, the Bears. They were not major league, but they were integrated. The football season ended in November and I wanted to get back to California. I arranged a ship passage and left Honolulu on December 5th, 1941, two days before the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. The day of the bombing, we were on the ship playing poker and we saw the members of the crew painting all the ship windows black. The captain summoned everyone on deck. He told us that Pearl Harbor had been bombed and that our country had declared war on Japan. When we arrived home, I knew realistically that I wouldn't be there long. Being drafted was an immediate possibility, and like all men in those days, I was willing to do my part. In May of 1942, the Army sent me to Fort Riley, Kansas for basic training, and I found myself in a cavalry outfit. After that, I applied for officer's candidate school. It was then that I received my first lesson about the fate of a black man in a Jim Crow army. The men in our unit had passed all the tests for OCS, but we were not allowed to start school. We were kept sitting around waiting for at least three months, and we could get no answers to our questions about the delay. It seemed to be a case of buck passing all along the line. Joe Lewis was transferred to Fort Riley, and when we told him about the delay, he immediately contacted some powerful people in the government. The Fort Riley command began to get some heat from Washington, and we suddenly found ourselves being welcomed into OCS. I became a second lieutenant in January 1943, Jackie Robinson writes. I gave Rachel a special bracelet and a ring, and we formally announced our engagement and agreed to get married when Rachel finished school. Everything seemed fine to me, though we were far apart. Since Ray didn't complain, I didn't know how tough things were for her. We had been together for three years, and Rachel, because we were engaged, felt she shouldn't date anyone else. 
The School of Nursing in San Francisco had transferred to, in September 1943, had rigid rules, and Ray lived under strict house rules in a town flooded with servicemen. Ray was in a dormitory with other girls who were having the time of their lives. I had been the first man in Rachel's life, and she was still quite young. She began to wonder if she had sufficient experience to make a choice that would last for life. One day she wrote me that she was thinking of becoming a cadet. I shook with rage and youthful jealousy as I read the letter far away in Kansas. I did not want her to become a cadet. In fact, I was adamant and I made the bad mistake of issuing an ultimatum. I wrote her to forget about our relationship if she went into the armed forces. She mailed the bracelet and the ring back to me. We both had a lot of pride and now I realize it was my fierce possessiveness that had forced her to act. But then I was stunned by Ray's reaction and I stubbornly vowed to forget about her. It was the last thing I wanted to do and I didn't know that she felt as bad as I did. Several miserable months went by. I tried dating another girl. I even gave her the bracelet Ray had sent back to me. I knew deep inside that it wouldn't work and it didn't. After OCS, some of us were assigned to the Provisional Truck Battalion at another section of Fort Riley, and I was made morale officer. Several of my men had come to me about the seating in the post exchange. The post exchange at Fort Riley was huge, and after the theater or other activities, many men would go to it for a snack. There were only six or seven seats assigned to blacks, and my men would be kept waiting despite the many empty seats available. I told them I would try to do something about this. My statement was met with scorn. I realized that not only did these soldiers feel nothing could be done, but they did not believe any black officer would have the guts to protest. Their pessimism only served to challenge me more. The following day, I telephoned the provost marshal, a Major Hafner. I made the call from my desk in our company headquarters. After identifying myself as the morale officer of my outfit, I told them about the lack of seats for blacks at the post exchange. I tried to appeal to the major by saying that we were all in this war together and it seemed to me that everyone should have the same basic rights. The major said that there was nothing to be done. I insisted that the men's protests ought to be given consideration. The major said it was hopeless. Finally, taking it for granted that I was white, he said, Lieutenant, let me put it to you this way. How would you like to have your wife sitting next to a N-word? Pure rage took over. I was so angry that I asked him if he knew how close his wife had ever been to I was shouting at the top of my voice. Every typewriter in headquarters stopped. The clerks were frozen in disbelief at the way I ripped into the major. Colonel Longley's office was in the same headquarters and it was impossible for him not to hear me. The major couldn't get a word in edgewise and finally he hung up. I was sitting there still fuming when Warrant Officer Chambers advised me to go to Colonel Longley immediately and tell him what had happened. I know what the colonel, I know that the colonel heard every word you said, but you ought to tell him how you were provoked into blowing your top. I agreed and reported to the colonel. The colonel listened to me sympathetically and said that he would write a letter to the commanding general asking that conditions at the post exchange be corrected. A couple of weeks went by and I began to think the colonel had done nothing, but the master sergeant advised me that Colonel Longley had indeed written a sizzling letter to the commanding general. 
He had put in strong requests to change the seating situation and recommended that the provost marshal be disciplined for his racist attitude. I've always been grateful to Colonel Longley. He proved to me that when people in authority take a stand, good can come out of it. Apparently, someone high up did rebuke the provost marshal. A few weeks later after this incident, I had another phone confrontation with this same Major Hafner, and this time he was very respectful. One of my men had a girlfriend who worked for a colonel on the post. One night he visited the colonel's living quarters to see her. The GI got into an argument with his girl and beat her up. The girl's boss, the colonel, had the man arrested. I wasn't in favor of guys going around beating up women, but it was my duty to be informed about any problems involving my men. I called the major not to seek a break, but just to learn the details of the incident. To my surprise, the major was very polite when I identified myself. Oh yes, what can I do for you? When I told him why I was calling, he promised to check the matter out immediately. He did, and within a matter of hours, he had released the man back to my company. Ironically, this almost got me into trouble with the colonel who had ordered the man to be arrested in the first place. He phoned me, angrily accusing me of bypassing him to get the man released, but he understood when I explained. My protest about the post-exchange seating bore some results. More seats were allocated for blacks, but there were still separate sections for blacks and for whites. At least I had made my men realize that something could be accomplished by speaking out, and I hoped they would be less resigned to unjust conditions. I am reading from I Never Had It Made by Jackie Robinson, His Words in Autobiography. Moving on to our second reading for tonight, Stacey Abrams, Our Time Is Now. Well, with all of the Georgia political wranglings happening, this book is even more pertinent to right now. Um, in this particular book by Stacey Abrams, she is talking about all of the tactics um, and all of the things that were, that she has been using to change the circumstances in Georgia. And I thought this was a good read for us to jump into. And now, as we see, we need it even more. So we are in the section entitled, Suppression Starts With Who Belongs Here. And we are on uh, page 29. So we are going to continue reading from there. And she's talking at this point about the Naturalization Act of 1790. So let's dive in. The battle has long targeted the marginalized and the dispossessed, cordoning off the right to vote for a select group of people from the beginning. In the first full year of our nation's founding, the Naturalization Act of 1790 passed to prevent anyone except former slaves and free white persons from becoming citizens. This targeted the Native Americans who had occupied the nation long before the Mayflower reached American shores. Having dispatched with the potential of too many freed slaves by enshrining slavery into the founding documents, the U.S. Supreme Court cemented this position in Dred Scott versus Sanford, 1857, deciding that Blacks could not be considered American citizens and had no standing to challenge slavery. Chief Justice Roger Taney wrote, quote, 
a Negro whose ancestors were imported into this country and sold as slaves was permanently disenfranchised because a black person inherently was not a member of the political community formed and brought into existence by the Constitution. Now, we know right now, and I call them Dred Scott Americans, there are people in this country who stand by this decision. They don't consider you as a citizen. They don't think that you're supposed to be a part of the political community. And they consider themselves what they call original constitutionalists, i.e. whatever we decided in the beginning, that's what we want to stick with. We don't really care about the amendments because in our mind, property can't own property. In our mind, you are still considered property. And we see this even with the trial that's going on and the treatment of the man who was murdered and the dehumanization of him that continues throughout this trial. So let's keep reading. The notion of political community lay at the heart of this denunciation of black participation in American democracy. How dare you go and stand in line and cast a vote? We don't expect you to do that because we're perfectly fine with you not participating in the political community. And when you start participating in the political community, then it is a problem. Then we want to say it's voter fraud. Because again, we have people in this country who don't think that your vote should count, i.e. the Dred Scott decision. So they may not come right out and say, we believe in a Dred Scott decision, but it's essentially the same thing. We don't believe you should count because we don't count you. Okay. Just want to make that a little more plain for some people who don't seem to get why they're opposing your vote. All right. This notion of political community created a private club where the only accepted members had to look and act the part. At the country's inception, the founding fathers decided who would be deemed worthy of citizenship, and they used as a measuring stick the ability to maintain the class and power structure that had laid the foundation for their wealth and political dominance. Not surprisingly, only white men at the time were granted such esteemed status, not even white women. So if you're, if you're looking at people who are talking about they are originalists, they believe in the original intent of the Constitution, they're also telling you they don't believe in women having the vote either, which would stand to reason if you don't believe that women have, should have a vote you really have a problem with women holding political office, which is why you talk to the women who do hold political office in the country, in this country, the way that you talk to them. It all ties in. Mm -hmm. Not surprisingly, Dred Scott, in contrast, was an enslaved man who had been moved along with his wife and children into first Illinois and then the Wisconsin Territory. Under the laws of the time, Scott and his family were due to be freed because the slave owner had remained too long in a territory that did not allow slavery. 
Scott sued for his family's emancipation, but Justice Taney, rather than reviewing the law, went to the fundamental question of whether Scott had the right to sue in a court of law, a prerequisite of citizenship. Justice Taney rejected Scott's bid for freedom because he did not see in Dred Scott the markers of privilege that would entitle him to redress. That is to say that because Scott was not a white male, one whom the founding fathers had deemed worthy of citizenship when the Constitution was written, Justice Taney and the majority of the Supreme Court held that Scott and all descendants of African slavery were permanently barred from citizenship. Again, there are people who still believe this and hold to this. Despite later decisions overturning Dred Scott's case, Justice Taney set a course for the intervening centuries to test our battle for voting rights. For Justice Taney and his ilk, only privileged white men had the constitutional rights of citizenship and the right to chart the course of the nation. From the mundane decision of taxation to the sale of human shadow, the Constitution envisioned the narrowest class of power brokers, and constraints on citizenship are the most effective means to filter out the interlopers. What is so damning about Dred Scott is the absolute denial of citizenship, a participation in power to an American who had every reason to believe he was entitled to the protection of membership. With the decision in Scott's case, states continued to deny the rights to citizenship. Slavery flourished until the Civil War, and even in the free states, blacks were allowed to be state citizens, but had no say in federal laws or decision-making. Each time the most effective marker of citizenship, the right to vote, is suppressed, there are echoes of Justice Taney's edict, those who cannot vote, have no say in the operation of government, which creates a permanent state of powerlessness. So the fact that you come up and you dare to participate in the operation of the government makes white supremacists especially livid <laughs> because you're laying hold on the idea that you are a citizen with full privileges and equal rights as those that the Constitution was intentionally written for. So when you say, I'm not going to vote because it's stupid, the white supremacists, they do this. They say, good. Awesome. We don't want you to lay hold on your citizenship. So think about that the next time that you say you're not going to participate in the very thing that is a marker of your citizenship and your rights and your privileges in this country. I'm going to read one last section. We'll dip into the next section and then I'm going to open it up for comments. A moment's grace, reconstruction to a false redemption. And we see Again, that this country is trying to repeat its history by trying to bring us into Reconstruction 2.0. And we're not going to go. After the Civil War from 1865 to 1877, the United States made a brief aborted attempt at meeting the basic premise of democracy by finally enforcing, for the first time, the rights of Black Americans. This period was known as Reconstruction. 
The opening salvo came in the form of the 13th Amendment, ratified in 1865, which abolished slavery and involuntary servitude except in the case of committing a crime, under which you become a slave once more. A critical prerequisite for expanded Black participation in the decisions of their communities. However, even the abolition of slavery carried a wicked reprisal, allowing, as we said, for the involuntary servitude as punishment for the commission of a crime, a feature exploited eagerly by not only former Confederates, but their Northern and Western white compatriots in power. With newly freed slaves, mostly living in the South, there were more than 4 million enslaved at the time of the Civil War, the, the fight to prevent full citizenship was waged for more than a decade. Starting with the Black Codes, formalized by Southern states like Virginia in the 1860s, and they had counterpart codes in the Northern states, some dating all the way back to the colonial era. In the South, a newly freed Black man had no right to vote. In the lawless towns that existed after the war, Blacks could not own weapons to defend themselves, even though organized law enforcement might not exist. Even the act of walking down a street carried danger. Vagrancy laws made it illegal for Black people to move about without proof of a job. Hence, some of the same kinds of laws that we still have in place go to any building and what will you see, usually outside of a business, no loitering. It's the same thing. <laughs> Do not stand around without proof of a job or that you have somewhere to go and something to do. A black man waiting on a street corner to meet his wife could be arrested and jailed for nothing more than standing still. Once this happened and the man was convicted, the 13th Amendment then allowed him to be subjected back into slavery, also known as involuntary servitude. Taken together, these laws and rules established the limits of black lives, regardless of where they lived. The passage of these state laws enraged more liberal Republicans in Congress and new federal rules were proposed to enforce fairer participation for black Americans. During Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 as well as the 14th and 15th Amendments begin the painful reassertion of our nation's principles of equal protection under the law, which, if we could argue, most African Americans have still not seen this. The little-known Civil Rights Act of 1866 followed the end of slavery, and it transformed the lives of Blacks in America. For the first time, federal law guaranteed legal rights allowed for labor rights, and permitted access to education and freedom of religion. Black churches often had been maintained in secret up until this point began to flourish. Historically black colleges and universities educated teachers and doctors and businessmen and other black students gained acceptance to historically white institutions. Economic opportunity began to open up for hundreds and thousands of people grappling with the transition from slavery into a putative free market economy. But the act had its fiercest opponent in Democrat Andrew Johnson. 
serving his turn as president in the wake of Lincoln's assassination. Johnson vetoed the act, but a Republican Congress overrode his veto. In 1868, three years after the end of the Civil War and the end of slavery, the 14th Amendment granted citizenship to anyone born in the United States, which overturned the Supreme Court's decision in Dred Scott. Black men and women finally held a status they had been historically denied, but Native Americans did not benefit from this change. No persons considered visitors to the United States or Native Americans living on reservations, as most laws required them to do, could lay claim to citizenship or its benefits. Two years later, the states ratified the 15th Amendment as a guarantee of a right to vote for citizens regardless of race or color. However, women could still not vote for decades to come. During Reconstruction, black men rose to power in the former Confederate states, serving in both chambers of Congress and as governors. The veneer of inclusion tarnished quickly, despite constitutional changes and new laws. While the 15th Amendment guaranteed the right to vote, it left it to the states to decide the administration of voter registration and the whole panoply of election laws from polling locations to candidates to dates to the timing of the elections. So even if blacks had the right to vote in their state, the polling place might be located 10 miles away. With no means of transportation, many could not physically reach the location. Literacy tests were a favorite tool that was borrowed from the Northeast, and they were popular because both immigrants and freed Black Americans often had limited education due to what? The law that said they couldn't read under pain of death during slavery. Connecticut pioneered literacy tests in 1855 to limit access to the ballot and exclude Irish immigrants. Under these tests, voters would have to prove their command of language by reading a passage aloud and then answering questions showing their reading comprehension to the satisfaction, not of the test, not of an objective test, but to the satisfaction of the examiner. Of course, the tests were administered in a fashion that made it harder for those whom the establishment wanted to disenfranchise. In Alabama, for example, White voters would be asked to read and discuss an eight-word passage from Section 20 of the state's Constitution, which simply states that no person shall be in prison for debt. The Black voter, however, would be asked to read and explain the entirety of Section 260, which was 80, 187 words of convoluted language that established laws of taxation and state bonds. For most of us born after the end of literacy tests, we have a vague grasp on what hurdles our parents and grandparents faced to vote, let alone their grandparents. Black voters had to unravel complex laws that trained lawyers would have trouble deciphering, all in a bid to cast their vote. We're going to stop there. We'll stop at the literacy law because it wasn't just the literacy law. But as you can see, here we go again. So no, it's not literacy laws right now. 
It's denying water. It's denying simple things. It's saying, we're going to take you to jail, i.e. involuntary servitude for doing something as simple as passing out water to those who are now standing or will be standing in line. I just want to say 2022 is coming. Please pay attention to the people who want to take us back to Jim Crow and get them out of office in whatever state that you're in, wherever you live. Look at this, look at the people who are on the record voicing their approval of Jim Crow-like laws in your state and get them out of office. <laughs> if you don't want to go back to 1866, 1868, 1865, get them out of office. <laughs> That's the best advice I could tell you at this point in time. So this has been another episode of Daring Dialogues and I've been your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I'm going to turn it over to you all. If you would like to speak tonight, you can simply type I'm in into the comment section. And if you've been listening on Anchor, I want to thank you for tuning in tonight. Remember, you can always catch our live broadcast at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Monday through Friday. Until tomorrow, God bless.